0: Good evening church family good to see you uh, for those that might not know me um, angus introduced me as ashley i get to serve as the assistant pastor here and my primary responsibility is is to um spend time thinking about children and young people and the youth within within this uh within this congregation and it's a joy uh, we're going to um think about biblical principles for youth ministry um we're going to root ourselves in deuteronomy 6 and we'll be going elsewhere in the bible so you'll find it really helpful to have your bible open Um, and before we do that though let's pray again father in heaven we praise you you're so worthy of our worship our adoration Uh, lord you're you're glorious and majestic and you're the creator and sustainer of the entire cosmos Uh, you're holy and pure uh, and lord you're the god of mercy and rescue we thank you for what you've done for us in the gospel that you've Rescued sinners through the sacrifice of your own Son. And thank you uh, that you are uh, here amongst us by your Spirit. Lord, would you uh, minister to our hearts? Would you speak to us through your word? And would we, your people, give you the worship that you rightly deserve? We pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me introduce you to three types of youth ministry the fun youth ministry. Uh, What teens really need many say, is entertainment. This is what will draw them in. We just want to, we want to share Jesus. Uh, we want to play loads of games. Uh, we don't really have time for, for theology. That will turn people away. That will turn them away. And there's the fun youth ministry. There's the relevant youth ministry. What we need to be is culturally relevant. Teens need to hear us speak about the issues of the day, environment, racism, poverty, friendship, Porn. Don't worry too much about deep theology. We just want to teach them about these issues and then show them how to live and point to Jesus. There's the nerdy, bookish type of youth ministry. See, what teens need, some people say, is to study deep theology. We need to verse them in the ancient traditions of the church. We need to introduce them to the early church fathers and the medieval monastics and the magisterial reformers. You can tell which way I lean more. Now, these uh, are caricatures in some way. Um, But you go uh, uh, join an online uh, group or forum anywhere in the UK on, on youth ministry, and you'll bump into a number of different philosophies concerning youth ministry. And the question I suppose that we should be asking ourselves, as those who believe God has spoken, is what does the Bible say about youth ministry? It's a key question. And to answer that really quickly, grab your Bibles and we'll turn to the page that speaks most clearly about that. Um, if you can just turn to your Bibles with me to 2nd Opinions 4, which is the book next to First Experiences 3. And that's exactly where we're going to find uh, the stipulations about youth ministry. If by youth ministry you mean um, what is the balance between activities, games and teaching, or if you mean how old you need to be to be a youth leader, or the division of youth group ages, or maybe uh, whether we should partner with an external organization or not, the Bible says precious little about those things specifically, and yet it does say a lot. I'm convinced that biblical youth ministry is essentially an application of, of the commands that we bump into within the scriptures to pass the truths of God on to the next generation. And they're all throughout the Bible, as we'll look at, but specifically in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay, so we're going to look at this under three headings. Youth ministry and. So youth ministry and, if you're taking notes, the family. Youth ministry and the church. Youth ministry and mission. Okay, youth ministry and the family. Um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy 6 was read to us. Thanks ever so much for doing that, James. Uh, maybe we'll just uh, uh, lay out a little bit of uh, context of what's happening here in, in Deuteronomy. So God, the living God, has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And they're about to enter and to travel through and to seek to settle into a land that is rampaging with idol worship. It's a land that's full of sensuality. And and all over, there are ideologies and philosophies and patterns of living and temptations that are going to draw God's people away from the living God It's a dangerous place, spiritually speaking. And so how then are God's people going to flourish in this land that God's calling them to go to? Well, it's to the degree that they live in accordance with God's revealed word. The word uh, commandment, you may have even picked it up in that short passage that we read. The word commandment is used 47 times in Deuteronomy. The word statutes, 29 times. The word rules, 19 times. More times than any other place, anywhere else in the Bible. So Deuteronomy is a book about how God's people, it's about the revealed word of God and how God's people are going to live according to the word of God. And one of the central themes in Deuteronomy is the worship of the true and living God through obedience to his word. Now, we love uh, an anthem, don't we? don't know about you. A song that defines a particular moment for us. Uh, a song or a tune that we blast out through our Bluetooth speaker louder than our um, neighbor really cares to listen to. Uh, we have anthems in football when we're winning or when we're losing. You've still got to sing when you're losing, right? Uh, perhaps you've got an anthem as you drive or an anthem as you clean, whatever it might be. Well, look with me at verse 4 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. This was Israel's anthem. This was Israel's tune for life. And this was so fundamental for God's people. Uh, Jewish believers then and even today recite this truth morning and evening, many of them hoping to live and die with this profession on their lips. It's true for Christians and it's valuable for Christians and vital for Christians as well. This truth is so central that when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment, he quoted this in all three Gospels. This verse actually shapes our own mission here at Charlotte Chapel, right? To love, grow, serve and go. We're to love God. That's one of our primary functions as a church. That's one of the things that we're rallying one another to do. Now, there's so much packed into this verse uh, that we don't have time to cover by virtue of what we're seeking to do here. But notice a few things, the call, hear. In the, in the Hebrew, shema is the, is the word, and it's not simply just letting the sound waves kind of hit our eardrum, it's not that kind of hearing, but it carries the idea of a response in obedience, it's a listening and obeying, it's a hearing in order to walk in, hear. That's the call. What's the central theme? Well, have a look. Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Lord, the God's covenant-keeping faithful name. It's the covenant-keeping God. He's the one. He's the only God. He's the one who deserves their allegiance and worship. He's the central theme. And the call is to, to love this God with all their hearts. And it's not a kind of a warm, fuzzy love, uh, but think loyal faithfulness. That's the kind of love that this is talking about. Uh, that word love is the same word that's used to describe God's relationship With Israel he loves them like a father loves a son he loves them like a a husband loves a wife and it's totality right have a look at it the heart the soul the might the heart is the control control center of life the soul is the, uh, the people's very essence of being and their might is their physicality it's their strength and they're to love God with all of this so the call is to hear the central theme is the one true God and the context how are they to do this how are they to love and obey him with all their mind and soul and strength? Or more importantly, where are they to do this? Well, it's the context of the family, right? Look at me at verse 6 and 7. He says, these commandments, these commandments I give you this day are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. So they're to be on your hearts. That's a, it's kind of a, an idiom for a memory, committing them to memory. For having them on your mind and your thoughts. Uh, one author um, kind of said, to be on your heart is to be in one's constant and conscious reflection. And so as these, as these parents and these people have the, the commands of their God on their constant conscious reflection, what are they to do? Well, they're to impress them upon their children. Now, we all know the, the power of repetition, right? Uh, my son at the minute, his favorite word at the minute is why. Why? It's a new thing, but I can just, everything, everything I say, it's why, why, daddy, why, and it's, 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 it's powerful. Uh, the verb in press here, it actually it literally means to repeat, that's what it means. But actually, uh, the way Hebrew verbs work, it's actually a, a kind of a powerful, a strong, a forceful form of the verb. It's got a sharper, a more forceful application. So actually, it's this idea of almost like um, engraving, it's an engraving idea. And so through the regular and repeated impression, the precise tap, tap, tap. Imagine a a, a slab being chiseled out, chipping away daily. The loving commands of God being impressed upon the people until this wonderful message of salvation, of truth, of hope is engraved upon this young heart. That's the idea that's going on here with the word "impress." Uh, One translation says that the parents are to diligently teach these commands to their children. There's this idea of of exactness and carefulness and consistency. Where are they meant to do this? When? How? Well, uh, look at verse 7. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Moses uses this kind of rhetorical device called a merism. We use it all the time, don't we? When we say, uh, have you looked for that thing? I'm like, yeah, I searched high and low. Or um, or who's included there? Oh, you know, everyone, young and old. And it kind of means this and this, but everything in between as well. That's what he's saying here. When you sit in activity, when you walk, activity, everything in between. When you lie down, when you rise up, everything in between. And so it's shorthand for saying all the time, this is when these impressions are to take place in all manner of ways, in all contexts. The verse continues, you shall bind them as a sign on your head and as frontlets between your eyes. Um, not literally, although uh, some Jews still do and did do that. But actually, you imagine the, the, the symbols of them being on your hands. They control what you do physically, right? They influence how we use our hands to bless, to strengthen. And imagine them before you, before you, on your forehead, before your eyes. That's a kind of control our thought life and our direction of travel. So this is all-encompassing, right? Um, when I finish, uh, sometimes I'm in the office on a, a Friday night and I catch the bus, and each time it stops on Southbridge outside a noodle bar called Ikiagi. Anyone been there? Okay. Anyway, uh, I was struck by it as it hovered outside the thing, and I, so I googled the name, and uh, Ikiagi actually translates, they've got a whole blurb on their website, as a, as a reason to live. It's a Japanese word, it should be up on the screen. Ikiagi is about a sense of purpose in life. It's something that propels you out of bed in the morning. It's something that enables you to live ready and fully for. And I think Deuteronomy 6 is preaching to us, saying that our homes, as much as possible, the homes of these Israelites, and our homes should be, as much as possible, places where our children see that our reason for living, our ikigai, as it were, is the living God. Now, I know that we've not really mentioned youth work specifically, and we've just zeroed in on the home, but I think that's because that's the weight that the Scriptures give to where children and young people come to know about God. It's first and foremost in the home. And so how do we apply this? Well, um, as parents, I think we need to recognize that there are impressions being made upon our children, and I use that as a, as a double word. There are impressions being made on our children uh, whether we are aware of that or not. And we want to make sure that they're the right impressions. We want our households to come to a loving knowledge of the God who rescues his people. And so if we want that, then just like the, ancient, uh, the households of ancient Israel, our households must be places where the word and worship of the one true God is central. All our aspects of life. Now, um, I've been a rubbish parent this week. FYI, And so if any of you are sat there feeling like you've not done a good job, uh, I think the Lord has shown me this week (laughs) that I am in and of myself a failure. I have been grumpy, a bit cold and distant and not a very present uh, father. And I need a savior. And my kids need to know that I need a savior just as much as they need a savior. And so if like me, you're feeling a bit guilty about your lack of progression in the Christian life, or the lack of centrality of God in your household, well, there's good news for you, just as there's been good news for me this week, that Jesus is our Savior, and he's rescued us from our failures, not only our sins uh, outside of the family, but the ones that we've committed inside it. The first commandment that we've broken, to not love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the other commandments that we've broken, there is forgiveness and redemption and cleansing from those sins. But praise God, there's also power through his Holy Spirit, to actually go on living in accordance with his word, to not keep making the same mistakes that we make. So I think the first things first, we need to get right with God, repentance and faith. And then we can start beginning to think, how can we make our families a place that, that holds the worship of God, his word and prayer as central as possible? Now, this is going to look Very different for different families and different ages of children. So it's probably no good in giving a list of things that you can do. Our hearts so often can lead to self-righteousness, can't they, in trying to do these things. But ultimately, it's about bringing the truths of God contained in the Word of God into all aspects of our life. Just like Moses was saying, whenever we sit or we rise or we walk or we stay still. Whatever it is that we've been learning, say, in church on Sundays or in our own personal Bible reading, bringing those things, seeing how our hearts fall short... Seeing how the gospel uh, brings forgiveness and restoration and salvation and sharing those things with our children, bringing those things into conversations in the home. An example, I get cross with my boy and I have to say, I'm really sorry, I got, I got angry. And actually, the Lord requires patience of me, to be patient with you. And I need Jesus to forgive me of that sin, but he's given me help in it by his spirit to continue to grow in patience. I need forgiveness, will you forgive me? I mean, how many conversations could we have around the house (laughs) if we were confessing our sin regularly? I think we could do that. If you struggle with this, don't suffer in silence. God has given us a church family, right, of of parents of all different ages and stages to get alongside. Maybe find somebody that's got children with a similar age of you or or maybe that are just a little bit older so you can seek some of their wisdom. You can ask, hey, are there any mistakes that you made that I can maybe learn from not making? Or "Could, could we grieve together? Could we pray together? There are so many good books on, on parenting. I, if you, I'd love to hear some of them. I've also got some recommendations as well. Um, so that's the application for parents. Thinking about this as youth work then. Taking these truths from Deuteronomy and the centrality of God and his commands, how do we apply the centrality of the family to youth work? Well, youth ministry must be connected to the family, right, surely. Any youth ministry that we do in Charlotte Chapel must be be connected to the family we must be able to communicate with the family members as youth leaders as those involved in church leadership about the spiritual progression of their children about the spiritual needs of their children so that we can partner together in sharing the word of God and in seeking to instruct them and so parents you can have youth leaders round for lunch Pray for them, communicate with them regularly. And youth leaders as well, don't feel like you can't say anything to parents about parenting just maybe because you don't have children yourself. There's a kind of an angle and a vision that you get to see of their child that maybe sometimes the parents don't quite get to see. And so you could share some of those things with the parents. So youth work centers on the family because this is the primary arena of both evangelism and discipleship that God God has revealed to us. That's point number one, youth ministry and the family. Point number two, youth ministry and the church. It's in the context of covenant community. Have a look at verse four again of Deuteronomy 6. So parents, praise God, we are not alone in the task of reaching our children. Notice who the commands to hear are aimed towards. <clears throat> verse four, hear, O Israel. So the commands are aimed towards the covenant community, aren't they? So the discipleship and the evangelism happens principally and primarily within the family, but the family are placed within the covenant community. And it's in the covenant community where men and women and children, where the the foreigners and the the visitors come together to hear the word of God. Whether it's in the the weekly gathered service, whether it's in the special feast days throughout Israel... Uh, There are a number of verses, Joshua 8, Ezra 10, Nehemiah 8, that look at the the, the gathered worship of God's people, old and young. Uh, There are examples that even we saw in Deuteronomy 6 uh, uh, of a son asking his father what these stipulations and commandments are about. Or you recall Exodus 12, one of the ceremonies that God's people would observe uh, in the Old Testament. As a covenant community, they would observe this ceremony, the the sacrifice of the lamb to picture the Passover. And what does God say, Exodus 12? He says, observe this ceremony, the Passover, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and who spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And the assumption is that the acts of God's people are going to promote curiosity among the children. Why is it that we do that, Dad? Dad? What what is it about that mum? Why do we do that? And one of the roles of the parents within the church community is to use that as a teaching point. That's great when we get asked those questions, right? And so these events were expected to remind the nation of God's faithfulness and to be used to teach future generations. So the covenant community, it wasn't only for adults, but children were expected to be there as well. Okay, what about in the New Testament then? Yeah, well, in the coming of Christ in his life and death and resurrection, he defeated death, rose from the grave, ascended on high, and distributed gifts to his people, Ephesians 2 tells us. He gave us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. And the roles of those gifts, those gifted individuals, were to equip the saints for works of ministry. So it's in the covenant community within the church that parents are to be equipped in order to disciple and evangelize their children. And this is done in a variety of ways. Ephesians 4 says we're to speak the truth in love. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we're to encourage one another and to build one another up. Hebrews 3 says that we're to exhort one another. And so there are these speaking commands going on between the people of God. But actually, in Ephesians 6 chapter 4 and Colossians 3 verse 20... There are commands directed not only to parents, not only to the covenant members as well, but also to children, with the assumption that they would be part of this covenant community. Children, obey your parents. In Titus 2, uh, a letter that's helped, uh, the, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus on the island of Crete, where he's there looking to shape and fashion covenant communities. He says this, Titus, you're to teach sound doctrine... And this teaching continues between the covenant members. We've got uh, older women discipling younger women. We've got older men setting an example and discipling younger men. This happens in the covenant community uh, even with our, with, our, with our signs. So uh, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, about the Lord's Supper, when the, the people of God take the bread and they take the wine, that this is actually it's a proclamation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until he returns, and so it's within the covenant community that this discipleship, this word ministry, this intergenerational discipleship is ongoing. Uh, I was a best man uh, in a wedding in 2017, uh, my friend Aaron, and he's a, a British Zimbabwean, and uh, during the speech of the father of the bride, uh, the uh, uh, Laura's dad stood up and said, uh, "It takes a village." to raise a child. I think we've heard this before. Well, it takes a church to raise and to disciple a believer. And so how do we apply this? Well, I think there's a whole church application here, right? The force of these passages remind us that the reaching of young people, the discipling of them, the, the passing on of the word, the reaching them, is a whole church affair, right? It's not for the parents Exclusively, though it's for them primarily. And so, whether you're older or younger, whether you're married or single, whether you've got children or not, everything in between, the discipleship and the reaching of children is a community effort. Let's so just maybe reflect how could you play your part over the coming weeks and months to do that? Now, there are many parents already that. Uh, regularly serve within the youth work, and that's brilliant. Maybe more of you could do that. You don't have to be in your mid-twenties to get down with the youth. It's okay. (laughs) In fact, it's really helpful if you're not. Parents, it's really, I think, impressed upon us in these verses that we're to communicate the importance of the church. And that's not saying the importance of Charlotte Chapel, (laughs) though I think, to the degree that we're faithful to the scriptures and faithful to God's word, then, then yes. But the, 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 as parents, we're to promote the primacy and the value of the church, the bride of Christ, the gathering of God's people as the central place of what God's doing in this world. And As we think about youth ministry then, how do we apply this to youth ministry? Well, two S's, structure. How does, this, how does the understanding of word ministry uh, revealed in the, the Old and New Testament affect how we structure our church? Now, I don't think we need to place every instance of, of a word ministry or speaking one another in the Sunday gathered worship necessarily. We can be flexible on when and how we meet. But I think given the importance of intergenerational community, the importance of the gathered church, surely... We want to make the most of the corporate times that we meet. We've got flexibility within the structure. And so whether we choose a Friday night or another night, what we want to do ultimately is provide, in some ways, what we provide for other groups within the church, whether it's women or students or senior men, is to provide something outside of the gathered community, outside... Uh, ...of the gathered worship service to disciple them in targeted and appropriate ways. Okay, so the structure, what about the substance? According to what we've seen revealed in God's word, what does it affect about the substance? Well, surely then, we want the means of growth and godliness that are present in the covenant community... ...the spoken word, prayer and discipleship to form the bedrock of our youth ministry. In some ways, I'm not saying anything new or radical here, am I? We want to teach the Bible... We want it to be central. Jesus tells his disciples that a key marker of reflecting Jesus to the world will be their love for one another. And so we want our gathered times to reflect something of that also. I was at Greenview this morning over in Glasgow and it was their youth fellowship Sunday so they were involved in all kinds of aspects of the, uh, they were doing the AV and the music and, and uh, one of the youth leaders was leading the service. And um, uh, they looked at their five-year teaching plan. And it was robust. It was brilliant. It uh, had everything from different genres and books of the Bible to topical uh, talks to really grappling with some of the basics of Christianity to then some of the, some of the deeper and scarier questions. And this is what the youth leader said. He said, um, we want to disciple them really well from, from S1 to S6 so that if somebody becomes a Christian... <laughs> We can praise God for his mercy and grace, but if someone at the end of that rejects it and walks away from Jesus, at least they know what they're walking away from. I thought that was quite heavy. So we want the truth clearly taught. Okay, final point. Youth ministry and the mission, or this could be youth ministry and its content. So what are we aiming to do in youth ministry? What's the purpose? What's the end product that we're aiming for? Well, it's maturity in Christ, right? We had Colossians 2 read to us earlier. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not looking for a get out of hell free card. That's far, that's far too minimal uh, for our God and for what he's done for us. We want maturity in Christ. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, the only way that we're going to do that, is by teaching the full counsel of God. We will only be able to present folks mature in Christ when we take the hollow and deceptive philosophies that are all over this world and we hold them up against the glorious light and truth of the gospel of Christ. So our culture, as you'll know, young people, promotes many different philosophies about identity, about belonging, about purpose, many of them contradictory. You're both an accident and yet you're valuable. You're both, uh, it's right how you feel unless it offends somebody else. You have purpose, but you're to determine what that purpose is. No wonder it's confusing. And so youth ministry must engage with these philosophies. And it must use the only weapon that we've been given to do so, and that's the word of God by the spirit of God. And so um, the way I've thought it helpfully is we're to teach um, the gospel. Uh, I read it somewhere, I can't remember where. uh, The narrow gospel and the broad gospel. So we're to teach the narrow gospel. This is the message of Jesus' death, his substitutionary death for sinners on the cross and the forgiveness that we can have through faith in him. We want to proclaim that message. That's all throughout the scriptures. Jesus is the only name under heaven given by which we are to be saved. We want to make sure that message is proclaimed frequently, loudly, and clearly. But we don't want to fall off either edge of the ditch. We need the broad gospel as well. And the broad gospel deals with the reality of the implications of that gospel on the lives of young people and all who come under its banner. It's the motivation for the gospel that, that God in eternity past set his love upon a people in order to rescue them. It's the full flow of, of uh, salvation history, the history of the Bible of God rescuing his people. And it stretches into eternity future where God's people are going to be surrounding the throne of the throne of the Lamb, worshipping him in perfection. It's, uh, the broad gospel implicates how we live now in light of the truth of that narrow gospel that we've placed our faith in. And it's the gospel that answers these vital questions that all human beings, but also particularly that are pressed upon teenagers, the who am I, the identity question, the where do I fit, the belonging question, and the what's my purpose, it's the mission question. The gospel answers that, right? Who am I? We well, you're an image of God-bearer. We've been learning that in our morning services, haven't we? You were made to be a, a vice-regent under the Lord God. You were made to be a creative content maker in this world, to fill this world full of God's glory with creative genius. That's what you were made to do. But the world's broken. We're sinful. That explains our brokenness. That explains the reality of death. And yet, if you trust in Christ... Yes, you carry this body of death with you, but you're also a saint. So this identity question, the question that young people are wrestling with is answered in the gospel. What about where they belong? Well, we can speak to them about why they long to be part of a community because they were created by a God who is in community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's rescued his people to be in community, the church. And what about purpose? Well, there's no greater purpose right? <laughs> than doing what you were designed to do living for the God who created you and being on this global, multinational mission to rescue people and to bring them under the sound of the living God and to love them and live with them forever. So, the mission of youth ministry or its content must be the, the gospel but it's also to be relationally driven. And we're drawing towards the end now, keep going. <clears throat> uh, why do advertisers place their brands on superstars? They make millions, don't they? Absolutely millions by wearing a little tick or a, or a few stripes or some other thing or a watch or kind of walking, wearing a perfume that you're meant to smell from an advert, which I find utterly weird. It's because they understand the desire to want to be like somebody else, don't they? They understand the desire in humans to be like others, the discipleship desire. I want to be like them, and therefore, if, we, if they wear those products and I wear those products, I'm like them, okay? Discipleship is kind of fundamental to who we are as human beings, um, in the Greco-Roman world, discipleship has a, has a, a long pedigree where uh, young men would, and young women would come and follow their disciples. They would follow them everywhere, follow them around, uh, philosophers or uh, army commanders. And in the rabbinic tradition that Jesus was a part of, there was a rich history of, uh, of following rabbis, uh, doing everything that they did, uh, even kind of sleeping the way they slept and doing very weird things. Um, <clears throat> Sometimes the charge against discipleship, so discipleship's core, relational discipleship is key to the Christian life, key to youth ministry. And sometimes the charge against discipleship can be, well, what about, what about evangelism? But the two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, there's a chap called Ken Moser, and he's written a number of books on uh, youth ministry, he now lectures on youth ministry. And he says, effective evangelism takes its starting point from effective discipleship. But let's look at another couple of more authoritative examples. We see the greatest example of missional discipleship, discipleship that, that focuses on going out and gathering in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. So Jesus is an example. He's chose uh, 12 to be, uh, to be his immediate disciples from the wider discipleship group and focused on them following him so that they could go out and reach others. And the Apostle Paul uh, was, was absolutely keen on training young men, whether it's Silas or John Mark or Titus or Timothy. And we know that Paul had four generation, generations of believers in mind when he wrote to Timothy to say, Timothy, you need to train men who are going to be able to train men who will imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so any youth work that we do must be driven, must be centered as well on Christ-centered relationships that aim at maturity in Christ. And so I think there's an application here for us as youth leaders, that it's not simply enough to turn up on the night and then to leave. Discipleship is much more all-encompassing than that. And so many of us, we are stacked with a variety of responsibilities. We're trying to do this over here and this over here. And so potentially what we need to do is reevaluate what we do so that we can do a few small things very, very well. And as parents, I just think we need to have confidence in the tools that God has given us to reach the children of this church and beyond. It's his word, it's the church, it's gathered people, and his spirit. As I close, God's people in Deuteronomy were heading into a land full of idolatry. The band can come up. What did they need to know? They've fallen asleep. The band can come up. I joke. God's people were heading into a land full of idolatry. False philosophies everywhere. What did they need? They needed families and parents to train up their children in the knowledge of God. They needed the covenant community to be speaking the word of God to the people of God. They needed to take every opportunity to point to the God of rescue, to the God of faithful promises. What's going to equip our folks to stand against the increasing weight of opposition that we see in our world? Well, it's exactly the same, right? As parents, as we seek to, in repentance and faith, share the testimonies of God's goodness, of his word. As the church family, as we seek to speak into the lives of both parents and young people, and as we do it all in dependence and faith in God on his promises and in obedience to his word. Good timing, it's not even my alarm. Let's pray. (laughs) Sovereign God, we praise you and we thank you for your unspeakable mercies towards us. We realize our own uh, failings in our obedience to you, in our parenting, in our uh, life as as church members. But Lord, we thank you that that the gospel is so powerful. The the blood of Christ uh, cleanses the deepest of sins that we can find forgiveness in your sight. Psalm 103 reminds us that as far as the east is from the west, have you removed our sins from us. And so Lord, uh, it's through the gospel as well, in the power of the spirit that you give us the ability to to walk uh, in step with your spirit, and to walk in increasing obedience to your commands. And so Father, we pray that we would do that as a church, whether parents or not, whether youth leaders or not. And Lord, we ask uh, that you would have a great harvest of souls within our youth work we pray that we would uh, raise the next generation that love you and love Jesus and that it'll be through the efforts uh, of parents seeking to faithfully walk with their children and Lord we pray that we would raise a generation of those that are on on mission that seek to reach this world that so desperately needs to hear about you and so Lord equip us for the task we pray and we ask that it all be for your glory amen we're going to close with a great um, missional outcome uh, for the course. Please stand as the musician